This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ron Brownstein. I am the editorial director of Atlantic Media. This is Dr. Jacopo Anisi, who is the uh, director of the Brain Observatory. He leads the Digital Brain Library Project, and he has degrees in biology and zoology from the University of Rome, neurological science from the University of College London, and a PhD from Dartmouth College. I suppose the definition of cutting edge is when I have to ask you even to describe what your, uh, what your uh, uh, profession is described as neuroanatomist. What is a neuroanatomist? Well, neuroanatomist studies the, the structure of the brain. Now, the cutting edge is uh, no pun intended. Exactly. I, I imagine, well, I, yeah, because... we, may, we may have some more on the cutting edge in a minute here. Um, but you are, you are building a digital brain library uh, with the goal of digitally recording, you have said, 1,000 brains. What inspired this? Why are you seeing this? It seems like an, an immense lifetime project. What, yes. what, what, what set you off on this uh, road? Well, it, it, you know, I, um, it, it's, it's, it's a response to uh, neuroimaging, really, the way it has been pr- uh, conducted in the last 20 years. Uh, the, the concept that has been proposed uh, in the last 20 years in neuroimaging, creating an average brain, creating a template representing the human brain. So maybe because I come from um, a more humanistic background, I always thought that it was, it's very difficult to imagine a, a template that would represent everybody. Um, you know, uh, experimental animals, it's usually assumed that they're very similar, in fact, genetically and, and structurally. But for the human being, I always thought that there is something quite extraordinary and very unique about each individual. So the, the approach was, became, rather, in, rather than creating a single template, to try to archive as many cases as possible to represent the variability. When did you start? Uh, we started four years ago. Uh, I mean, I've been slicing brains for, for 15 oh, years. Yeah. High school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have m- microtome elbow by now. Uh-huh. All the, all the uh, but the, you know, the, the, the idea of starting a, a proper curation project and uh, combined with neuroimaging uh, really started about four years ago. Started with, uh, because we were charged with the examination of a very famous uh, brain. Mm. Is, that the, what, is that where you began with? Yes, it was the catalyst for this project because also we were not, um, with this particular brain, because it was very well known in the medical literature, we were not uh, required really to, to be completely anonymous with this study. So we were able to put a face to this brain. And this is Henry? Henry Mollison, the, mm-hmm. um, or patient HM, as known in the medical literature. So once there was an identity for this brain, I realized that it, the, this project became a transcended, really, a brain mapping project. And also I noticed that... the the, the public responded very vigorously to this project because, again, there was a human element. So I pretty much went back to my existing brain collection because we were operating also as a brain bank. So we were collecting brains and, of course, preparing them, uh, creating maps that other researchers could use. And I went back to this collection and I started uh, seeing whether I could find out who these brains were. And it was a, very, it was a paradigm shift in my career, mm. definitely. But it was also a paradigm shift in, uh, in brain mapping, as far as I'm concerned, because then I started discovering that maybe the brain number, you know, for, for, for whom I only knew the, the age, the gender, and uh, a, a disease, a diagnosis. And so I started 
learning that this this brain was a painter and that this mm-hmm. other brain was a musician. This you other want brain to know was something a, about yes, the and, subject. Yes, and we reconciled. So it was also interesting to to meet the families or the relatives or the friends and re, and rebuild the life experience of this brain. Before you go forward with that, explain for one moment why the, your first patient was so famous. What was it about uh, Mr. This, Mollison? This, uh, Mr. Mollison was famous in the medical literature because he was the first patient who demonstrated that there, is, there are two structures in the brain without which we cannot make memories or retrieve memories. This structure is called the hippocampus. We have one in each hemisphere. About if, if you push your finger, don't do that now, but mm. if, you, if you reach into your brain, but here you'll touch your hippocampus, probably create some memories. And um, he had surgery because he, was, he had epilepsy, he was epileptic, and so at the time, in 1953, they tried a, an experimental surgery on this patient to try to relieve, uh, relieve him of this, uh, mm. the, these seizures. And uh, when he recovered from the surgery, he, he pretty much didn't recognize anybody anymore and couldn't retrieve his older memories and uh, most importantly, he could just not make new memories. So he would forget everything that he was doing or everybody was meaning. So, and it was the first case that showed that these structures were important. I mean, neuroscience before MRI really progressed because uh, some unfortunate individuals had uh, holes in their brains. You know, Broca's patients, Monsieur Lebron, you know, he couldn't talk, mm-hmm. but any word like ta 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 and this is French. So to us, maybe mm. it always sounds yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, there but, you go. Uh, and, and there he had, when the brain came to autopsy, the neurologist did something quite extraordinary for the time. He decided to preserve this brain in a jar. And that became sort of this iconic mm-hmm. gesture, which I'm still doing now. But this patient showed, for example, that there is an area on the left hemisphere of the human brain that is necessary to produce speech, and so on. So it was like a, uh, eventually a puzzle that uh, taught the neuroscientists what was happening where in the brain. So when you say, when we say you are digitally recording a brain, what exactly is involved now? What, what, what happens? Yeah, so uh, that was the first phase. And then we decided that uh, it would have been a much better idea to try to sign up people uh, while they were alive. So instead of trying to reconstruct the life history of a brain after the fact, we would actually be able to do it in person. And so, for example, I'm carrying a brain donor card with me if something happens to me. Uh, then, the interview uh, goes really badly. <laughs> <laughs> I notice here there are some right. <laughs> scary-looking yeah, things. No. Um, well, then my brain will be... I'll be carried away, and mm-hmm. they'll take my brain, and then eventually slice it and digitize it, and my brain will be on the web. Uh, but you know, if you decide to donate your brain right here now, uh, we'll have our first date mm-hmm. uh, during which I'll scan your brain with using MRI, and then uh, we will do tests of personality, and then you'll tell me a little bit about your life. We'll do some interviews with you, and we'll, um, and we'll see you every year so that we can repeat this cognitive test. And the advantage for you is that you have a pretty much free way of uh, monitoring your brain wellness because we do it for you. And uh, our advantage is that you give us information about your brain in vivo, and you give us precious images of your brain in your head, uh, which is what we use to compare to other neuroimaging studies. And then you give us the greatest gift ever, which is then eventually you give us your brain. And what happens to the brain after the person dies? So after well, you, you extract the brain, uh, then it gets there's a, there's a process uh, that has to occur very quickly to preserve it chemically or freeze it. But the, the, the real pivotal 
time is when we actually slice the brain in its entirety into this sort of 2,500, 3,000 layers. Because, and that's called uh, it's, it's histology. We need to prepare this material so we can look at your brain with microscopes. And, uh, you know, until MRI, and there are physical limitations, so I doubt that it will get there, MRI does not see that level of detail. So MRI cannot see the phenomena that are occurring in the brain at the cellular level. So, uh, unfortunately, we have to do this very long and tedious process of creating these slices, and we archive them in order. But then the word digital comes into play because these days, obviously, all this data is reconstructed digitally into a 3D model of your brain. Mm. And then the slices, what we use now, Google applications, so that the slices are digitized at very high magnification, just like, on, just like a, on a microscope. So the resolution is now about half a micron per pixel. Wow. So it's a very tiny. You, know, you can really zoom in and look at a single cell. I'm going to show this um, today at 1 o'clock, I think. You think I'm going to show now? Oh, yes. And so then <coughs> when, I, when I talk... Um, in the community about this. Uh, I call it the brain library because I always make the, the connection, the idea that the brain is like a book. And, of course, we, we, we read into this book to reconstruct the life history. And it actually, this is my very secure case where I carry slides. So, and this, in fact, are... So this is, this is one out of the let's say, 3,000 layers in the brain. And it gets encased in... If I drop it now, it would be very important. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, about 15 microns. Uh, a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. And this very thin slice of brain now, it's encased into these glass slides. And we, this is what we use to image on the microscope. So this, this, okay, so this would be the page of the book, one of the pages mm -hmm. of the book. And we read it by <coughs> examining features. So this particular... Case was, a, was a, a patient who had dementia, so we, we performed the stain. So the brain, you need to stain it to see the feature. So we use dyes or molecular probes, antibodies. In this particular case, it looks brown because we use a silver impregnation technique. And the silver binds to the Alzheimer lesions. So we can certify that this patient had Alzheimer or not. Yeah. Alzheimer was a neurologist <coughs> who, again, was the first one to diagnose in a brain uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, this pathology and these plaques that you can see, and that's a validation of a diagnosis of Alzheimer's that it's done clinically in vivo. So tell me a little bit, <clears throat> as you mentioned, that part of the project now is interviewing people as they are alive, learning what they like, what they do, uh, the, the, you know, their, their preferences. What, what, is the, what do you hope to gain from that? How does that connect to the physical evidence that you are accumulating? Well, the, the vision is to eventually understand what makes... Uh, a painter, or what makes me who I am versus you. So we, of course, we also sampled um, saliva for a genetic background uh, to know to know your ancestry, and eventually we want to preserve as well the DNA because part of who we are is also in our genes, of course. But there is also a developmental process. I'm interested in the blueprint of the brain, whether we can read in these blueprints um, something unique about a certain person, and whether there is then a pattern in people that choose, uh, that have certain outcomes in terms of uh, health, mental health, mm -hmm. or eventually, as I said, you know, uh, lifestyle, whether there is some patterns in the blueprints that are in common of different so people. The, so the thought is there would be a physiological or neurological correlation to, to 
temperament or intellectual attributes? To many aspects of behavior. And that's why our, our, our exam is, is, very, is very eclectic. I mean, we do personality tests, we, do, we perform IQ tests. So it's, a very, it's, a very, it's a lot of work on each, on each mm. particular patient. So we, we, we're only limited by resources, of course, because uh, uh, we, we have to turn down uh, brains at the moment because it's, it's too many. So sociologically, the project is ready to ramp up. People uh, are very... We, we were able, with a lot of outreach, and presenting this project in a way that's more friendly rather than a brain bank with a, with a smell of formalin, you know, the, the giving this idea of a, in the basement of a uh-huh. medical school. We kind of brought it into light. You know, I was slicing this brain online. So and people are interested uh, because they feel that... Uh, we, we're kind of like publishers of their brains. You know, you, everybody wants to write their biography, you know, oh, leave behind. And so we do that for you. Uh, and that's the value that people see in the project. And also we don't make it very ghoulish. Everything is very nice and clean. And we, we bring out the aesthetics. If you come at one, I have some beautiful pictures. I, uh, but the real, uh, so that I don't sound completely frivolous, I mean, the, the real application. So at the moment, in the short term, we're doing something very important, I think, which is correlating non-invasive neuroimaging with the actual pathology, which is in the clinical neurosciences is very rare. You can really only do it on experimental mm-hmm. animals. So the opportunity of having images acquired in situ, so I mean in the, in the skull uh, of a patient, which we can compare with other data from very large-scale neuroimaging projects, uh, but having also the, the extraordinary opportunity of having the actual brain, we're already able to correlate the, the, what MRI sees. So if there is a bright spot in an MRI of a patient, we're able now to find out exactly in the same patient what the bright spot really is, which could be a process of inflammation or it could be a deterioration of the axons. And, uh, but the, in the future, what I foresee and what I hope the outcome of all this work is, <laughs> is the fact that a doctor in the future, a neurologist, who has the prerogative of, of extending or uh, making this patient life better. So in improving li- either life expectancy or improving quality of life. They don't have the possibility of really looking what's going on inside the brain of their own patient. Imagine this is 25 years from now. Uh, you don't want to take, they don't want to take the brain of this patient out. The whole purpose, yes. the whole point is to keep it yeah. in as long as they can. And so uh, if you donate your brain, you know, all the cases that we have archived so far, the, the goal is so that this, this uh, neurologist, and this is, uh, say, 25 years ago, so it's a minority report. Mm-hmm. He will find uh, at least 10 cases that we have archived zealously now that he can match to his own patient. And not only by gender, age, and diagnosis, but also by occupation, by personality score, extrovert, introvert. So making this match as precise as possible. So we we launched this campaign of a thousand brains. I don't know if a thousand, it's a nice round number, but I don't know if a thousand is enough. Uh, The question is how many will we need to what, to how feel vast, that you have a, a so that this valid doctor, pattern. Yeah, so that this doctor really have a meaningful comparison, at least three or four, right? but that he can compare the MRIs because that's what he has, and we have acquired those, mm. and then he can go beyond in our, in our images and try to get a better sense of what's going on in his patient's brain and therefore prescribe a more appropriate treatment. Having flown in last night from shutdown Washington, I can think <laughs> of 535 brains that many people would like to have you scan right now. <laughs> But 
having said it that, it will be a very quick study. Very, what, one, <laughs> Three what, sections yes. each brain, probably. One, one, thing I, one thing I wonder about, it, maybe, and maybe, you're, uh, maybe what you're doing now helps answer this, is people change over, over their life. Their interests change, even their degree of empathy changes. Um, do you think there is a physiological correlation to that that we will see in the brain if someone is very different in what matters to them after 45 than before or something well, like that? Well, we cannot. We can only, of course, as you can imagine, we can only do neuroimaging during life. We cannot pick their brains right. every little every time, you know, to see what can. So, but neuroimaging is becoming more and more sophisticated. Uh, of course, better tools, better analysis tools. So there is a lot of information that we can gather from the MRI. Uh, and I think as we and and we have a good good of course relationship with the many institutions, especially in San Diego, the medical examiner and the uh, organ. Uh, procurement organization, tissue donation. Sometimes there are cases in which, sadly, a, a younger individual come, you know, comes to autopsy and we're able to have these images, correlated images for younger people. So even though it's not the same person that we're following, but at least it adds a little bit more information and we can then make this... Um, we can try to translate... What we see. So you're but, starting to get pictures at different ages. It's not yes. just because you, you're saying you know obviously for uh, most donors you're getting a, a final snapshot. Right? The brain, yeah. Once you extract the brain and say this person, and here is the philosophical, the moment of the cathartic moment when when a real person you interacted with, you spoke with many times, you maybe became friend with, becomes a brain. So the, that that's more a philosophical problem. Like, uh, is this the same person? Is this now a specimen? Is this person the body? Uh, I mean, my heart was a little bit, you know, racing when I came here. So I agree with Dr. Ramesh that it's not all about the brain. Uh, but then, at least we will exhaust. Uh, the goal is eventually in neuroscience to exhaust uh, all the. The, no, the need for knowledge of wh what the brain is, how it works, and then if there is something else, then we'll know that it's not all about the brain. But when, yes, we, we, uh, our, our youngest participant is 22, and our oldest is 103. And they're both very, doing very well. You know, that's why it's... Uh, and, and again, if you imagine this, uh, if we, we would we would have many, many people, and therefore there would be hundreds of people in their 20s who are brain donors. You know, we need, you need to make it, as, as we said, we've done, I've done a lot of work in the community to make this a, a socially acceptable project. So, because without that, you can even have a ton of money. But if people are not willing mm -hmm. to participate, if you don't provide some incentives and make, this, and make them feel part of it, then uh, I don't think... Right, let, let's give the audience a chance. Do we have some questions? Uh, we have one right there and then a couple up front. Uh, Bob Engler, I have two questions. Uh, one is, are you doing functional MRI on, on your subjects to see, to give them tests to make them think about things and see what lights up and correlate that with anatomy later? And the second question is, what do you expect to find in a really good chef like you? In, in a what? A good chef like you. Uh -huh. You cooked dinner at our house once. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> oops. Yeah. The past exposed. You're a good chef. I, I don't use the same slicer for prosciutto. Uh -huh. I have two separate two instruments seven. altogether. That's really good. That's very yeah, reassuring. That's, so just to... Uh, um, okay, first question. We... Uh, there would be a lot of things we could do. Uh, functional imaging, we've had a smaller cohort, a smaller group in, 
for whom we started doing resting state fMRI. Um, we, we had created a paradigm that was pretty much like a, a complete functional port portrait. Uh, so we had some visual paradigms, we had some uh, auditory paradigms, because that the goal was, yes, to get a, a, a rough picture of how that brain worked. Uh, the um, resting state fMRI, it's really a way to define a kind of default network in the brain, kind of like our brain when it's idling. It's a very strange concept if you think about it, because my brain is never idle, <laughs> you know, so I don't know if I do resting state. But it's an idea to look at the... What, what's become very relevant in neuroscience these days is not so much classical anatomy, the definition of territories and what lights up and what not, but how brains are wired. And uh, this is a technique that shows the different wiring in different people. But like you said, the wiring changes, yeah. uh, just like a city. Uh, you know, they build new roads or they close different mm -hmm. other roads. So... Uh, the, this type of neuroimaging, uh, diffusion tensor imaging, um, and at UCSD there are groups that are very that do some very advanced work in that respect. Um, so it's, it's, it, I'm lucky also to be able to leverage this, these projects. And uh, so you get a, get a map of connections, and that seems the, probably the most significant aspect of, of our reason of our behavior. Uh, rather than how many cells I have in that particular area. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it partly answers your, uh, your question. And the other, about uh, cooking or, or painting, we have several artists in our project, and the question of creativity and the brain, it's a very complicated one, because at the beginning I was very naive. Remember I told you I found out one of our brains was a painter, so I got very excited about getting more brains of painters. And, but then I realized that it was very naive of me to think that I could find something just specific about a painter's brain because I interviewed the, uh, some painters who donated the brains. Donated, I mean, donated in the sense like an individual would donate a painting in their home to a museum, but they would still enjoy it. So mm -hmm. this is where I talk donation is not yeah. meaning, okay, you said yes. Yeah. Uh, meaning you can keep it, you keep ah, it, it's yours, yeah. and then when you're not using it, we pay. So, Pretty uh, much a one-time donation in that case, yeah. yes. Well, she said that for her, the painting is like problem-solving. And I thought, ah, ah damn it, the frontal lobes now. i got to look ah. at the frontal lobes uh, instead of the back of the visual cortex. So it, it's a very complicated question. Uh, IQ can imagine. We do IQ tests, but there is different tests, and what does IQ really measure? So, but it's a beginning. So if you never start... Uh, if we'll have 500 painters who have different styles, figurative artists or an abstract artist, and we do all the possible measurements in the brain that we can, maybe some patterns will emerge. There was a question maybe. over here, and she was there, then over there. How about that? And there was one back there. Uh, my name is Bill McCarg. I, I'm uh, with Chisera, just a, a local company. The um, question I had, and you just touched on it, was uh, that's what you're mapping. You're actually ma mapping uh, neuronal connections. And is 15 microns really enough to, to, to get the vertical dimension of what neuron is connecting to the subsequent layer? Right. Well, we cut the... This gets a little technical. I'll be very brief, though. Yeah. The, we actually cut... We, we had to decide... Uh, what the thickness of our sections would be. Uh, and we actually, when the brain is ready to be cut, we cut at 70 microns. Because we don't embed the brain in wax or plastic, so our brains are not dehydrated before we slice them. So, but the 70 microns, when we do the process of staining, uh, then it becomes about 15, which is what we need to do what is called stereology. It's a quantitative method to count and to measure density of neurons to measure. So that was a good trade-off, and now this is the approach that we have. The issue of reconstructed in 3D, 
let's say if we wanted to really reconstruct in 3D a whole brain, you have to consider not only stacking all these slices and the, and the images that we... So if you come to see those Google images, they are 2D. Mm. In reality, these 15 microns, it's a slab. So you want to be able to image. But we have software to do these scans over the entire... But we calculated that each brain would be about a petabyte of data. That's like streaming 3,000 years of MP3 music. Mm. You know, uh, so... Wow. It's, a lot of, it's a lot of data, yes. and uh, it's it can be done. Again, it, the, the resources, if there's enough resources, you have a team. My lab is like a small, uh, a little small factory, you know, uh, and there is assembly lines. The more you can industrialize the process, the faster this archive will, will reach useful dimensions, I think. Linda Strauss, clinical research and alumni at UCSD. I'll make it very brief. First of all, intellectually, I find it totally fascinating. But I can't help to ask you what your thoughts are on the ethical issues of getting to a point where you could actually be predictive. So long-term ethical issues or the ethical issue of actually revealing the identity of the brains? Um, Privacy aside. I'm more... Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different question. Because they they, they, want to be revealed. Right. uh, So that's a different question. I'm concerned with Alzheimer's, for example. What if you could be predictive. Well, but that's where the field... I mean, it, it is a debate, indeed, the, you know, whether you know, the Alzheimer's Association, National Institute of Aging, uh, w- neuroimaging now is trying to predict the outcome. Uh, the people, um, mild cognitive impairment versus Alzheimer's. And there's going to be a presentation mm-hmm. exactly on that uh, by Dr. Brewer, using neuroimaging and large-scale, large-scale projects to try to determine you know, who will become demented and who will not, based on images when people are still don't have clinical signs. Uh, this is a refinement of that, because what's missing in this project is the validation at the pathologic level. And, but, you know, for example, before I talked about value, and you're right, some people may not want to know that their brain is, the atrophy uh, is, is actually faster than uh, the control group, than a normative baseline. Uh, however, I think that these days, not only there is a trend for... for individuals to feel more in charge of their own health, um, you know, personal, of course, medicine, but generally there is a, we heard the talk, you know, mm. we heard an interview um, at the beginning of the Congress about, you know, Google yeah. uh, and um, the fact that people search and people go to the doctor and, and we, you know, when, when people have their brain scanned, you know, these images are a tool for them also to, to do research on their own and to, to ask their neurologists what they think. And I think information is still very important. You know, I think in five, ten years, there are things, changes in lifestyle that can help mental wellness and, you know, diet. Uh, nutritional program. So I, I would rather know uh, than to gradually feel helpless because I, I begin to feel that something is wrong and I don't know what's happening and I don't remember things. Oh my God, is this, is this, is not. So I would personally know. Thank you very yes. much. Join me, join Thacker and Nisi. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.